Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man whose fantasy football team will squash your little fantasy football team like a grape. Here is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we are very excited to be featuring True Believer IPA by the great, hardworking folks over at Twin Elephant Brewing. This delicious IPA is eminently drinkable with clean malt guts and a really great triad of hops. We are talking Citra, Mosaic, and Cascade. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. And I want to start off by sending a Ron Swanson please and thank you to our friends Cindy and and the Twin Elephant Herd. And a big, nice jib to Mike in Toronto, Canada. All right, I got two from the old Keystone State. Cheers to Jessica in Brookville, Pennsylvania, and cheers to J.C. Lee in Catanning, Pennsylvania. And a big cheers to Patrick in Fort Benning, Georgia. Next up, we have Jen from Stratford, Connecticut, and last but certainly not least, we have Curtis in Lindenhurst, New York, Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and donated to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, thanks for donating to the BWRUN Beer Run. For all of our old episodes, check us out in the Stitcher app. They are free. Also, we have a bonus show called Off the Record, and that is only on Stitcher Premium. You can find all those links at truecrimegarage.com, and that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
young woman leaves work late at night and arrives home. Her car makes it into her usual spot in the garage, but somehow she never makes it inside the house. With very few clues left behind, police are left scratching their heads. The number one suspect, the boyfriend, acts suspicious, but nothing ties him to the disappearance. The case grows cold and languishes for 30 years. In so many of these missing persons cases, decades pass. There is no movement on the case, and we are left with no resolution. But in this case, all is not as it seems. After nearly three decades, there is new information that is not really new at all, but it was left out of the case files. Some suggest this information was conveniently lost or covered up intentionally. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Veronica Jill Bloomhurst. Veronica Jill Bloomhurst was born on September 4th, 1969. Nothing is known about her birth parents. This is actually a major speed bump for the investigation. It's complicated, but we will get into that, the why that is important after we get to know a little more about Veronica, her family, and the day that she went missing. Veronica was adopted by Paul and Betty Bloomhurst when she was only seven months old. She had an older sister named Carolyn, also adopted, but from a different family, and a younger brother named Todd, who was the Bloomhurst biological son. Reports are that Veronica had some early physical disabilities that impeded her ability to walk, but with the help of leg braces and hard work, she eventually overcame this. She had magic shoes. She was also diagnosed with a learning disability and took special education classes in school. Veronica was somewhat quiet and shy, but was friendly and everyone liked her. She was a bit of a homebody. Her family likes to say that she often was tucked into bed by 8 p.m. unless she was working or with her boyfriend. In 1990, Veronica Bloomhurst was 21 years old and living at home with her family in Mendota, Illinois. Veronica lived with her parents and her brother Todd on Monroe Street. Mendota is a very safe, small city of about 7,000 residents in northern LaSalle County. Well, and on top of that, they moved there because the father became a firefighter, and he was well-connected, not just in the fire department, but also with the police department as well. Yeah, her father, Paul, was a firefighter. Her uncle was a police officer, and her mother worked at a nursing home. Her older sister, Carolyn, in 1990, was in her mid-20s and lived about 20 minutes away with her husband. Veronica was working as a sales associate at a local retailer about a half a mile from her home. This is at Dempsey's Super Value. 
She had multiple job duties. This included cashier, manning the movie rental counter, and selling lottery tickets. Many people in town knew her as the friendly movie clerk, and although she was not a gregarious person, she was described as bubbly. When she wasn't working, Veronica spent a lot of her time with her boyfriend, Jeff Ververka, a 22-year-old computer science junior college student whom she met about six months earlier. The two were serious and had discussed marriage, although they were not officially engaged at this time. Now, we relied heavily on the terrific series of articles in this case by Jim Haggerty that was released earlier in 2020 on the Rockford Advocate website. We spoke with Jim as well, and we'll be sharing some information that he gave to us. Now let's get into the events, Captain, of September 19th and 20th of 1990. This weekend, ahead of us, marks 30 years that this young woman has been missing. And foul play is absolutely suspected in this case. Now, the day in question will be Wednesday, September 19th, 1990. Mm -hmm. Veronica went to work at 5 p.m. for her evening shift as usual. This is the cashier gig at Dempsey's SuperValue. She has worked there for several years. Veronica recently had a bad case of mono, and she wasn't feeling very well. Have you ever had mono? I have not. It's awful. It just, you feel completely drained like you don't even feel sick so much or at least i didn't i just felt completely exhausted well and it ruined the new york jets football season last year mm -hmm. so you know it's serious so she's not feeling well she's still taking medication for mono at this time around 9 30 veronica's sister carolyn came into the store and talked to her sister about a doctor's appointment that Veronica had the next day. This, of course, to address the mono that she's still fighting off. Mm -hmm. Then Veronica called Jeff, her boyfriend. She rented a movie for herself from the store's catalog of VHS films. This was the Bette Midler movie Stella. An old school VHS. Mm -hmm. Be kind, rewind. Mm-hmm. When her shift ended at closing time, she walked out of the store in the company of another sales associate. This was her friend, Sharon Vandiver. And what time was this at? It was late. This was at 1.07 a.m. So Veronica told Sharon that she was very tired and she was going to go home and go to bed. She intended to watch the movie the following day. Mm -hmm. The two walked to their cars, parked on the west side of the parking lot, they warmed up their vehicles, defrosted the windshields, and then Veronica got into her blue Chevy Corsica and drove north out of the parking lot onto Mirrodin Street and headed east toward her home on Monroe Street, which again is just half a mile away. The next morning, Veronica's brother Todd woke up for school. Todd was having some car troubles, so Veronica was supposed to drive him to school that day. Right. She wasn't downstairs yet, but he saw her car in the garage, so he just simply waited. But she never came down. When he went and looked in her room, he realized that she was not there. So now he's like, she's not home at all. He called his father at work at the firehouse, and his father told him, you know, just drive your own car to school 
and I'll come and pick up this vehicle later and I'll do some work on it. So Todd leaves the house. He goes off to school. Paul, father, arrived home from his overnight shift around 8 a.m. that morning. He assumed that Veronica was out to breakfast with her boyfriend, Jeff, and simply forgot about driving her brother to school that day. Again, it's not a regular activity for her to drive him. Maybe it just slipped her mind. Well, and like you said, Jeff is, this is a serious relationship. So the family knows who Jeff is and, and everybody's aware of, of who he is. So Paul leaves the house again. Some reports say that he went off to his part-time job. Some say that he went to run some errands. Regardless of why he leaves the house, when he returned to the house, the phone rang. And it was the doctor's office. They're calling to say that Veronica didn't show up for her follow-up appointment that was scheduled for that day. Then the phone rang again. Now this time, it's Jeff, the boyfriend. He's asking for Veronica. Is Veronica there? They were supposed to go out to lunch, he said. Paul told him that Veronica was not home and actually asked Jeff had he seen her any time since she left for work the previous day. Mm -hmm. He said, no, I had not. Starting to worry, Paul calls his wife, who's at work. He asked her if she had seen Veronica that morning, and she says, of course, she had not as well. All right, so we are in a weird spot here, Captain. Everything appears to be as it should, with the exception that no one knows where Veronica is. Mm -hmm. Her car is parked in its usual spot in the Bloomhurst garage. It also appears that the vehicle arrived at or about the expected time. But anywhere that Veronica should be, she is not. She wasn't home to drive her little brother to school that day. She missed the doctor's appointment and she was not out with her boyfriend. I heard it reported multiple times. Some people say that it was a follow-up doctor's appointment. And some people were saying that because she didn't feel like the mono was getting better or she wasn't feeling better, that it was a extra appointment. And so that makes it even more important. Sometimes you don't follow up on an appointment because you're feeling better. The other thing, too, here is the garage setting. Right. There's multiple different kinds of garages. Your house now has an attached garage. Your house before had a detached garage. But this this is a detached garage, and it's, I believe, roughly about 30 feet away from the house. So it's, it's quite a distance between the garage and the house. Well, and it looks to me, too, that you would actually, if you were driving and wanted to park in the garage, that you would enter the garage from an alley that is behind the house and behind the garage. Right, that makes sense. That you wouldn't pull, that, that there may not even be a driveway to get you from Monroe Street to the garage. Mm -hmm. So with Veronica's car in the garage, this means that she, or at least the vehicle arrived home after her shift at the super value the night before her mom woke up around 2 a.m. And from the kitchen window, she could see Veronica's car was in the garage. The garage door was shut and the lights were off. This was the family's kind of signal, you know, that everyone was home and safe at the house for the night. 
the last person in would close down the garage. And Betty, it was routine for her to get up in the night to check that the garage was closed down. Well, and again, like we said, it's a very small community. Her father works for the fire department within the area. I think one of their neighbors was a police officer. It's a very safe area. So since there's no sign of Veronica, Paul, he gets in his vehicle. He drives out to the sister's house, out to Carolyn's house, again, about 20 minutes away. And this was just to see if Veronica was there. She was very close with Carolyn. And there was some reason to believe that she intended to go to her sister's house that day to talk about maybe wedding arrangements or wedding dresses. But Veronica was not there as well. When Paul showed up at the house, Carolyn was immediately alarmed. She says, you know, her father was normally a calm and practical dude. But on this day, he was quite panicked. And this set her off. So Carolyn had no idea where her sister was. And she followed her dad back to the Bloomhurst home. When they arrived, they were surprised to see Veronica's boyfriend, Jeff, as well as their neighbor, John. John lives across the alley behind the Bloomhurst home. He is, as the captain was saying, a Mendota police officer. Jeff called 911 around noon to report Veronica missing. With the arrival of the police, people started to gather at the Bloomhurst home and searchers fanned out to scour the neighborhood. We aren't going to get into the whole scope of the search, but the PJ star summed it up nicely by saying, quote, police quickly began searching the town and questioning people. Two hours after the first report, planes began to crisscross the sky for a glimpse of a missing woman. That day and several after, just about every fire and police department within 30 miles of Mendota assisted in the search. Hundreds of civilians scoured the area hour after hour, day after day, not stopping even in the rain. Dive teams jumped into lakes and ponds to seek clues, end quote. Now, remember, Paul was a firefighter, so you can imagine that we're going to have an all-hands-on-deck type of response. Right. And that her neighbor was a police officer. Yeah. The police chief stated that he could not even begin to guess how many man hours were expended on the search, Mm -hmm. which extended to a 15 to 20 mile radius of Mendota. And yet there was no sign anywhere of this young woman, no sign anywhere of Veronica. It seems that she has just simply vanished. Now at the house, It was Veronica's sister, Carolyn, that thought someone should check the trunk of Veronica's car. We got the car in the garage. No one's thought to check the trunk. And this is really, we've talked about this with many cases that we've covered. Mm -hmm. When a person goes missing, the vehicle is located. This is always a very traumatic experience for whomever is the one that is in charge of opening up the trunk. And a lot of times we tell these stories and it's a family member that's opening up the trunk of the vehicle. And it's something that they never, ever forget. Right. Now, Carolyn was very careful to open the trunk very, very slowly. 
All that was in there, thankfully, was Veronica's overnight bag, which I guess was packed and still in there from the weekend before. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, police looked at whether Veronica had actually made it home that night. As we said, her car was found in the usual spot in the unattached garage about 30 feet from the house. Right. Betty usually left the garage lights on for her so Veronica would not come home to a dark garage. Again, their routine was that Veronica would shut off the light, close down the garage before entering the house. Sure enough, the garage door was shut. The garage light was off. There was no sign whatsoever that anything was amiss. No sign of a struggle. Nothing was dropped. You know, there's not items laying on the ground that... Right, we don't have blood on, on the garage floor. Yeah, or any personal items that would be lying on, on the ground out there. But So we, we have evidence that the car made it into the garage. The light got turned off. The door got shut. We have evidence of that. We don't have evidence that it was her. Other than her co-workers saying that I walked her out to her car probably actually saw her drive off for a second. Yeah. And I say that, that it appears that everything was as it should be because we don't have a whole lot of time between when the coworker said that they left from their shift to the time where her mother would routinely wake up to make sure that the garage, you know, that Veronica's vehicle was in the garage and the garage was shut down. It was one Oh seven, according to the coworker. And according to her mother, Betty, Betty would usually get up around 2 a.m. to look out the kitchen window to check and see if the garage was shut down. Yeah, so nothing seems amiss except for we have a missing woman. Correct. Correct. So police did begin to suspect that Veronica did drive home, did in fact drive home, and then immediately left with somebody else. This of course, is because not only was she missing, but some of her personal items were missing that seemed to indicate that she had taken them with her. Mm -hmm. These items were her purse and car keys. The items that she was wearing, of course, were, were gone as well. And this included her boyfriend's class ring, her earrings, a watch, her glasses, and her red work smock. Also missing was the VHS movie, that she had rented at work and brought with her when she left that night. So captain, you're starting to see a picture here of if in fact she did drive home, she gets out of her vehicle, shuts off the light, closes the garage door. She's going to walk from the garage to her, her house. Yeah. Roughly 30 feet away. And it's almost like everything you would expect for her to be carrying into the home with her that night. Mm hmm is also the things that are missing along with her. Yeah, so then the question becomes, is she abducted? Does somebody pull up that she knows and says, hey, come with me real quick? And she gets in their car. What happened? Right, and I've not been able to find anything in regards to if the vehicle was locked or not, or if the garage was locked or if it was common for either to be locked it it's likely not important but i was looking for those details yeah but to be very clear yes there was a search that happened we have planes flying overhead we have people searching countless man hours 
15-mile radius. They didn't do a lot of searching of the actual property, of, of the house, of the garage, of her car. The idea to even search her trunk was not the police officer's idea. It came from the family. Well, and I think the problem here is very similar to what we were talking about yesterday on Off the Record. It's what do you think that you're searching for can often dictate the way that a search is, is that you go about the search. And it yeah. feels to me like in in these very crucial hours, you know, we can sit here 30 years later and go, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? But in these very crucial hours, they think that they're just looking for a person who who is missing for any number of reasons. They're not fully aware. Maybe they're not equipped. I don't know the answer to that, Captain. But for whatever reason, they don't think that they should be looking for clues uh, or evidence for, for foul play at the time. They're simply looking for Veronica. Right. The Bloomhurst family also believed that Veronica must have left with somebody she knew. Now, Paul told the Register Star that if his daughter was taken against her will, it was by somebody she knew. Otherwise, there would have been some noise or some sign of a struggle in the garage. She's always been, he says, very naive and overly trusting. I think what it's kind of a weird statement that he gives there, but I think what he's saying is even if she was taken against her will, she may not have realized that at the time and very likely willingly got into someone's vehicle or walked away with somebody right. that night. Now, dogs were brought in to track Veronica's scent from the garage. This is a good move. After sniffing an item of, of her clothing, the dogs left the garage and went into the alley behind the garage. And after about 200 feet, the dogs seemed to become confused and simply lost the trail or whatever trail they were following. The obvious conclusion was that Veronica may have gotten into a vehicle that was waiting for her in the alley. When she disappeared, Veronica was five feet tall, a hundred pounds with braces and hazel eyes. She was wearing a mint green sweater with a white tank top, cream-colored pants, and wire-rimmed glasses. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 
I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. 
Head to Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 and use code TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We are back. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Police labeled Veronica a missing person. Early reports state that police did not believe that there was foul play, but it was clear to everyone who knew her that something bad happened to Veronica. Well, we see this a lot with police where they go, hey, she's an adult. She probably took off. Maybe she's with another guy who doesn't want to tell her boyfriend about it. Maybe she took off with some friends. Maybe she took off to start a new life. Yeah. They did the typical thing. They thought that she left on her own. You know, she is 21 in their defense. There is no sign of a struggle. So they awaited, they waited about 24 hours to take an official report. But again, her friends and family are saying she didn't run away. That this is totally out of character for her. And there is some evidence of this, right? She did not take any additional clothing or any sentimental items. Right. It's just the things that she would have carried from the vehicle to her home. Her and those items are the only things that are gone. She rented a movie just the night before. That seems like a strange thing to do if you're planning on taking off the next day. Mm -hmm. She had a doctor's appointment later that day. And remember... She wasn't feeling very well the morning before. In fact, she considered calling in sick to her shift at SuperValue. Plus her family, they're on record. They said that she only had $10 cash on her at the time and that she left her paycheck at work uncashed. Well, she lived kind of a simple life. She struggled through school, so going to college was not really an option that she put into her own mind. And so really her plans were, I like my job. Yes, it's kind of strange hours, but it gives me a bunch of time during the day to do my own thing. And really the plan for her or her plan for herself was, I'm going to get married and become a mom and and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm pretty sure that in regards to her job with those weird hours, I'm kind of guessing here, Captain, because I don't know for certain, but I'm thinking that she probably shut down the store, that that store must close maybe at the one o'clock hour. And that's why her coworkers pretty firm on that 107 a.m. time of having last seen her Mm -hmm. again, $10 cash on her at the time. She had a paycheck at work that was left uncashed. If she intended to run away, she would have very likely needed some money, some resources. You would wait to get that check and cash it. Well, let's stay on that check for a second because it's reported multiple ways. Some people make it seem as if there was a check left in the car, like she had a work check in the car. That was what I believe is not the case, that she had actually a check that she was going to be receiving that the next Friday in a couple days. 
And that's the check that people are talking about her not having. Correct. The, the information I have says that the check, her paycheck was at her work. She also never used any credit card or accessed her bank account after the night that she went missing. Finally, Veronica's mom, Betty, was battling cancer at the time. Of course, Veronica was very concerned about her mother and made sure to check in with her all of the time. So the idea that Veronica would just leave was really unthinkable to her family and friends. A coworker of hers says at the super value who says she was the closest of the employees to Veronica said that she would have told someone if she was planning to leave or to go somewhere as she often spoke and told everybody at work about her upcoming plans. I'm reading a little between the lines here, captain. I don't know that I believe that this statement from the coworker means so much that she would have told us if she was planning on running away and starting a new life somewhere. I think it also hints to the idea of if she had something going on that day to meet with a specific person or go to a specific place, she probably would have blabbed about it to her coworkers at some point leading up to that event. Right. And what we have pretty much on record is her telling her coworkers, Hey, I'm going to go home. I'm not even going to watch this movie. I'm just going straight to bed. So no, talks about meeting up with her boyfriend afterwards or meeting up with a friend after work. She seems like an open book, doesn't she? Where we have both coworkers and her family that seems to say that they were very aware of what her plans would have been for the following day. Well, and I think a lot of people make something out of the fact that she was adopted and maybe now that she's a little bit older, maybe she'd want to know where she came from. But all indications point to she was kind of curious, but not that curious, and felt that it would be almost like an insult to her family that, that gave her this life that she enjoyed. Yeah, her adopted family is her family, and I believe that was her own words. You know, this this is my family, whether it means now or whatever, however she felt about it. She didn't feel the need to seek out the people that gave her up. She was living with who she wanted to live with. She was very proud that her parents, adoptive parents, were the ones that raised her. She's in a unique situation too, Captain, where her sister, her older sister was adopted as well Mm -hmm. from another family. So if she had any weird or mixed feelings about being adopted, she had someone sharing the exact same experience as her to go to and bounce things off of. Yeah. Police eventually came around to the belief of foul play in connection with Veronica's disappearance and their thoughts. This is not that it was not a random abduction. So per the register star that we quoted earlier, chief Ken Hahn said police quote, Doubt that it's a random abduction, in, a, in part because the super value store where she worked and her home are off the beaten path. Mendota is also small enough that everybody knows everybody, mm-hmm. and any strange face or vehicle would likely be noticed, end quote. Now, I know this is back in, what, 1990? Yeah. But answer me this question if you could. As many cases as we've gone through, especially missing person cases, if you're in law enforcement, how are you handling this? Because to me, it's almost like they use this, well, we think that she just took off on her own and she'll turn back up. 
it's almost like they're, which I know that happens a lot of times. I know that there's thousands of missing person cases and within 24 hours, 48 hours, that person's found and they're okay, no big deal. But it seems to me that it's not the responsible thing to do. That it's just, it's it would be better to, you know, let's wait and see and, and not put out any information at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tricky situation because she is an adult. I think had this been a younger person that we wouldn't be in the same boat that we are now. Right. I do also believe that there's likely in many of these cases, things behind the scenes that we are unaware of. Simple things of, okay, well, we have our our shift roll call for police, uh, for first shift, second shift, third shift of of this day mm-hmm. oh one of the notes is we have a missing young woman she's 21 years old here's a description of her and a picture even though we've not a gone official with it at this point yeah it's it's weird because when you look at these small towns especially the ones that are safe and have very low crime rates you go well what else could they be working on just make this priority number one yeah but it's also strange too because it's like maybe their their words and their actions don't necessarily match up where they go well look we think that she went missing on her own or she went went to go hang out with somebody but we're also all hands on deck and a bunch of people searching and we have a 15 to 20 mile radius of a search that seems a little take that's that's a little more taking it serious than the words of oh we think she'll turn up yeah, I, I think we're probably putting those in the wrong chronological order. It's obvious to me that it would be, oh, she might turn up, and then it's all hands on deck for a search right, later. Right, right, okay. So who took Veronica? Now that the police have come around to the idea that she's not just gone, that she's not just where she shouldn't be or was expected to be, that someone took her, and their words are, we believe there's foul play, in connection with her disappearance. And we also do not believe that this is a random abduction. I think they're probably pretty spot on with both of those thoughts and theories. Now, as we've seen in so many cases, the investigation is going to start with those closest to her. So two days after Veronica was last seen, police sat down with Veronica's boyfriend, Jeff. As we saw, Jeff showed up at the Bloomhurst home very quickly after learning from Paul that she was missing, right? He hears from Paul and then Paul goes off on some errands out to the sister's house, comes back to the home with the sister. And now Jeff, the boyfriend's at their house with the police officer. And now it's kind of becoming a thing that Veronica is missing. Right. So him being there, I guess is understandable, right? He would go over there to look for, but if there's, supposed to have lunch that day well he goes over there because he now believes she's missing not just to pick her up for lunch he's already no, no, heard that, from the that's father. what i'm saying is he was had plans with her and she didn't show up and now he's worried where she's at he and veronica were serious at this time he loved her by all accounts he was concerned when she didn't turn up but then he called 911 rather than leaving it to her parents. I think some people might think that this is weird. I'm totally fine with this. 
right? Because we've yeah. sat here before in these same chairs and said, why isn't anyone taking action? Mm-hmm. So we're not going to uh, punish somebody for being the first to take action. Yeah, I, I don't fault him at all for that. You wonder, was that uh, a discussion that Jeff and Veronica's father had? Right? Like, you wonder, because they, there was a conversation before Jeff shows up at the house. Did Jeff tell the father, hey, I think we should call 911, or I think we should report this to the police, and the father says, being the firefighter, being the guy that is said by his own family to be always calm, level-headed, did the father say, no, it's right. it's early, give it, a, give it an hour, give it a couple hours, let me go to her sister's house. You know, was Jeff, was he panicked from, from the get-go? Well, like I said, I mean, it just throws another wrench in the whole case because, like we said, she had some learning disabilities. She struggled just to get through school. I mean, they had to get her special help just to get her through school. So you would assume that Jeff would know her almost better than anybody at this time. You know, especially when you're 21, you're not sharing everything with your parents. So I just wonder if he really understood her capabilities with inside the world. When we talk about how her father says that she had this um, sense of naivete, how much does Jeff understand this? But he would have a better sense of who she was, w- what she was capable of doing. And like I said, this, this, the, the house being 30 feet from the garage, it leans to the idea that you could abduct somebody, but it seems like the idea that somebody would have to know her and on some capacity to get her into that car. Agreed. And I think you could look at this thing with Jeff of calling 911 one of two ways. With him arriving at the house and calling 911 and, and throwing himself into the investigation, it's either one of two things. Either he is responsible for why Veronica is missing right. and he's manipulating things to make it look like he's concerned, or to me, I, I think you could go either way with it, but you could also lean that this is further confirmation by somebody else outside of the house that she would not have just went off somewhere. But this Jeff guy is a unique character. He seems to have some social immaturity, I guess would be the way I'd put it. Well, He's not the best communicator with people, kind of a nerdy guy, smart guy. Everybody says he's pretty bright. Well, there's there's what we have is we have several people that say Jeff started to act inappropriately early on in this case. So first of all, they said that he would not leave the Bloomhurst home. So mm-hmm. he showed up there. He stayed there for three days sleeping on the couch. Mm-hmm. And the father, Paul, said, quote, he was constantly asking how the investigation was going. Yeah, almost like he was a little too concerned. Yeah, Paul says that he Jeff began answering the phone as if he was a person that lived there. Right, trying to control the situation, okay. And Paul told the media that he would not, meaning Jeff, would not leave our house. We didn't think much of it at first, 
but then we would just, he would just lay on our couch in the fetal position. Paul says, I think he went home to shower, but other than that, he was at our house all of the time. Mm-hmm. Every time the phone rang, he would try to answer it. We thought that was very strange. Again, it's, it's one of two things. The same thing we just talked about. It's either him trying to control the investigation, knowing what the police know, knowing what the family knows, or he's just really freaking concerned. Well, not only is he concerned, but he just doesn't think other people are capable. So he don't need to answer the phone. I'll answer the phone. You know what I mean? I I don't know that I we would I would take it that far um, to to worry that people aren't capable. Paul's a firefighter. I I don't want to try to think of what what Jeff was thinking. Just judging his actions, it, it shows me it's either one of those two things. He's trying to know, be the first to know about the investigation to cover his own ass. Right. Or he wants to be the first to know that everything's okay and that the woman that he loves is alive and well. Right. But that's why I'm saying about the maybe he there was a sense of him not thinking other people were going to do as much as he could do for the investigation. That's why he has to plant himself in their house. That's why he has to answer every phone call. That's why he has to talk to the police about every detail. That's why he's getting arguments with people about details and and conversations about her going missing according to the rockford advocate series on the case again by jim haggerty jeff the boyfriend approached the producers of the radio broadcast of the mendota high school football game that took place on friday september 21st this is the day after veronica came up missing Jeff asked them to play something for him during the halftime show. It was a recording that Jeff gave them to play that had Jeff reading some words. And he says on this recording, quote, I am making this recording for you because me and all your friends and family miss you. We want you back. I don't care what the problem is. I don't care where you are or whoever you're with. I won't be happy until you're back with me. I hope I haven't pushed you or anything. I don't think I have. I want you to know I love you. Everybody else loves you. And we're waiting to hear from you because we got some sad people. And wherever you are and whatever you are doing, call the Mendota Police Department at, and he gives their number, because I love you. I know you love me. So I brought this tape for you to hear because it's going to be strange to a lot of people out there, but you know this song and it's for you. And you know, I always think of you when I hear it, Veronica, I love you. This was followed by a polka song. I, unfortunately, I do not have the, the name of the, the song. <laughs> it's followed by a polka song. Well, polka's hey. big in that portion of the country it makes me think of you every time i hear it well so a lot of people thought that this was totally strange right maybe this guy is one of those just a dramatic person who is gushing publicly about his feelings and it might be overreacting in the eyes of some but airing this public statement basically very, very shortly after Veronica went missing, 
I do think it's a little odd. Yeah. A little odd. And a quick background investigation on Jeff revealed some concerning information. Um, according to people who knew him at work, he had a temper and was the type to quickly fly off the handle over very small things like a machine malfunctioning or something not working properly. Didn't he have an accident at some point? He did. Further, a co-worker of his who was a longtime friend of Veronica's told police that Jeff had become possessive and controlling of Veronica and would get mad at her if she was late for something or busy when he wanted to talk to her. Veronica told this friend on several occasions, quote, he's mad at me and I don't know why. This friend believed Veronica was afraid of Jeff's angry outburst. Another coworker of Jeff's, this is a woman, told police that he had called her down to their workplace one night after Veronica vanished, but didn't want to talk about work stuff. Creeped out, she left, but Jeff followed her home and demanded to know whether she thought that he had done something to Veronica. He even said to her, quote, this is according to this woman, I don't know why anyone would think I would have anything to do with her disappearance or murder. The whole incident left her feeling very unsettled because Jeff, and I have a problem with this too, Jeff was the first person to mention the word murder in regards to Veronica. To everyone else, she was just missing. Now, Jeff, her boyfriend, he is saying the word murder. Kind of want to argue with you on that a little bit because isn't that kind of similar to the 911 call? Everybody's looking for her and you go, well, I don't think that's enough. Could have called 911. Hey, I think she's just missing, right? That's a level of concern. And he then ramps up that level with of concern by saying, yeah, I don't I'm not so for sure that it's just a missing, that she's just missing. I think there's something more nefarious here. Yeah, I I don't know. To me, it's similar in where one may talk about somebody in the past tense and be the only one to know that they're no longer with us. True, true. After his daughter went missing, Paul Bloomhurst recalled that one weekend when Veronica had gone to a polka festival with Jeff, she had come home with bruises on her face. She told her parents that she walked into a speaker. So now there's a question to Veronica's parents. Was Veronica covering up for something that actually happened, something bad that happened on that trip, and maybe Jeff was to blame? Maybe was she covering for Jeff? It's worth mentioning that this character assassination of Jeff was not, it doesn't seem to be universal. Veronica's parents, Paul and Betty Bloomhurst and sister Carolyn and her husband, they all liked Jeff. They have said that he was, I think you use this word a little odd, a little quirky, but he, he was a horse of a different color. <laughs> well, they all said that it was clear that the two of them were in love. That, that he very much loved Veronica and she loved him and things seemed great between the two of them. 
Of course, people pointed fingers at him because he was the boyfriend, but there wasn't much to go on, right? Even after years passed, Jeff moved away and started his own family. But in 2004, 14 years after Veronica vanished, the Mendota Police Department officially re-examined her case. And in the course of doing so, they did some re-interviewing of people and reviewing of the evidence. This examination also included some new interviews. For example, Veronica's closest friend Tracy was interviewed for the first time, 14 years later, for the first time, and then they gave the case file to the Bloomhurst family. And what it contained about Jeff, the boyfriend, was enough to convince some family members, particularly Todd, Veronica's little brother, that Jeff had killed Veronica. And when the case file was leaked to the public, it had the effect of trying Jeff Veverka in the court of public opinion. So what do we have as evidence that points the finger in a negative light towards Jeff? Well, it's the case file. So let's go through what this case file said. On September 23rd, 1990, this is two days after Veronica went missing, police sat down with Jeff, who was at the time a composing room worker at the local paper, the Sterling Daily Gazette, as well as a community college student. The investigator who interviewed him, supposedly over a long period of time, there are varying reports on this, and you're going to have that when you have a case that's 30 years old. Most reports say that it was about six hours, maybe a little longer. The officer, the investigator who interviewed Jeff, then wrote up a summary of what he says Jeff said in this interview and what has been purported to have been said by him is very suspicious. Now, this investigator who wrote up this report was Mendota Police Department investigator John P. I'm going to go with P for his last name. That's P period. Who was in charge of the investigation. Yes, this is the same John who was neighbors with the Bloomhurst. His house was directly across the alley that was in the back of their home. Here is what the report says Jeff told police. Keep in mind that this is all as described by the interviewer, John, not verbatim and not taken from any transcript or recording. Either of those things apparently do not exist in this case. This is all as described in Jim Haggerty's series about the case. He has personally reviewed the police report containing this information about Jeff. So in this interview, it said that Jeff said that on September 19th, the last day that Veronica was seen, he drove his father's van to Veronica's house and then used Veronica's car to run some errands. He later returned to the car to the Bloomer's home. That's a confusing story in, its, in itself. I don't know why he wouldn't just use the van to go about his errands, but this is what police are saying he said. Then around 4.40, he was in his van and he saw Veronica leaving for work. So he drove to Super Value, waited for her to park. When Veronica pulled into the lot, he said he inched the vehicle, his van, up next to her vehicle 
And then the two kind of, you know, gave an I, I love you type signal to one another. He then drove home to his house in Sublet, Illinois, and didn't talk to Veronica until 9.30 p.m. She called him from work, he said, and they discussed having lunch after the doctor's appointment the next day. He said he then watched a movie and fell asleep at 1.30 a.m. Then, according to Mendota police investigator John, his report says Jeff gave reasons why he might be involved in Veronica being missing, and he also gave us ways he thinks it might have happened. Per the report, Jeff blurted out that maybe someone she knew in a van, no, a truck, drove up by her garage and she got into the vehicle with them. Maybe they got to fooling around and maybe she said no and she was pushed or shoved and got hurt real bad. And then he dumped her somewhere where no one would find her. Also, it's possible that when she got off work, she took her red smock and placed it over the passenger's front seat and someone may have taken it and put it around her head and did something. And this smock was not found. Correct. He went on with another hypothetical saying, maybe I thought when she told me on the phone that night, her sister was taking her to a doctor's appointment that she was pregnant. And I drove down there, pulled up in the alley and she got into a van. No, a truck. And we argued and maybe I was afraid of what our parents would say. And I did something. I don't remember. Maybe I was the person who picked her up and I thought she was pregnant and I thought she was pregnant and I lost my mind. Yeah. But this is after how many hours of questioning the least amount of time that I found in the reports say six hours. Yeah. So it's anywhere from six to, I think I've seen up to 24 hours of them questioning this guy. Which, yes. Which that would be a long time. I don't know how the... You would think the officer would need to take some kind of... The break. officer started confessing. Uh, hey, I worked... I Several times I worked over a 30-hour shift. If you want somebody to talk, put me in a room with them. We'll go at it for two or three days. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> Nonstop. The other big problem and issue I have with this, with this information is how it comes to us. This is not a audio tape of Jeff being interviewed by police. This is not a videotape of Jeff being interviewed by police. This is not a transcript of that interview with questions and answers, questions and answers. Well, it is a transcript. No, it's not. It's what it is, is it's the officer's he is telling he's reporting later. Yeah, it's a transcription of his him remembering well right but (laughs) we can get into semantics if you like but it's it's not the proper use of the word transcript what i'm saying is this is not even the officer didn't sit down and write down this stuff in the interview itself this is a couple days go by and he's told his superiors that jeff said some incriminating stuff when i interviewed him for hours the other day Oh, what did he say? Oh, he said this and this and this. Well, could you write that down for us in some kind of report? Right. And what I mean by that is you could, you could take that any way that you want. There's a lot of nuances that are missed and left to speculation in this situation. This officer is reporting this days later. 
did Jeff say that he did this or did Jeff say that someone could have done this? Well, that's two very different things. Mm-hmm. And we have this officer writing it down days later. Also, we just, we're just, we have the only this officer to report this. We don't have anybody else backing this up. We have no, again, no recording of any of this. Nobody else sitting in the room writing down the same notes. Right. But this reminds me again, Shaker Heights a little bit, right? West Memphis three. Well, Shaker Heights, they recorded the interviews and they had multiple officers in the interview room at the same time. Right. But again, with this case, we don't know, but I, I don't like the question of, well, how do you think it would have been done? You know, or like when in West Memphis three, when Damien goes, well, the killer must, uh, enjoyed it or I must've felt some power or, or something. Right. He's speculating on something. And then people turn that into, well, he must've done this because why would he say that? Well, cause you're asking him to speculate. Those are pretty common questions that are that are that are in these interviews. Again, I believe to me it's the nuances that are missed because you didn't bother to you didn't transcribe the interview. You didn't record the interview. Then now 48 hours later where the officer says to Jeff, "Well, what was she going to the doctor for?" Well, she had mono. Could she have been pregnant? Jeff says, "I don't know." And then later the report says, Jeff said she might have gone to the doctor because she was pregnant. Those are two completely different things using about the same words. Right. It's, it's way too messy, I think, to look at this and go, well, Jeff's statements are very incriminating. No, the practice in which that you obtained that information seems to be extremely flawed. If you have thoughts on this case, go to truecrimegarage.com. Check out our blog. We're interested in hearing your thoughts. And until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't litter. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.